Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy, and of course, in Johannesburg. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon, and I'm thrilled to have、uh, two of our newest members of the China Africa Project.、Uh, we're going to start in Norman, Oklahoma, with、uh, Karina, Karina Lagardi, who is、uh, pursuing a master's in international relations with a concentration on economics and development. And Karina is going to、uh, start to write for us on our website, and which we will post on our Facebook page.、Uh, good, very early morning to you, Karina. Good morning, and,、uh, and then we're going to head over to Shanghai, China, where Tendai Musakwa is there, who's pursuing his PhD at、uh, Fudan University. And、uh, good evening to you,、uh, Tendai. Good evening, Eric. Uh, so we're going, as usual, we have、uh, three topics that we're going to talk about this week, and and, and really just we're going to hit on some of the most sensitive issues in Sino-African relations. So I think this is going to be a really interesting show.、Uh, first, we're going to go to、uh, Deborah Browdigam's blog.、Uh, Professor Deborah Browdigam, if you're not familiar with her, is one of the most kind of accomplished Sino-African scholars. And this week, she posted up a、uh, really kind of the equivalent of a letter to the editor, which was、uh, a comment on her own blog from a Chinese businessman who talked about. About his first-person experiences in、uh, labor relations in in Nigeria, and and that set off a lot of discussion this past week. So we'll get our our panel's feedback on that. Then we're going to head down to uh, Zimbabwe, uh, where there's a report that came out from a, a UK environmental group talking about that half of the logging that's going on in Zimbabwe is illegal and going off to China. Of course, that is no surprise. We've talked about illegal logging before in the past, but yet there is now more documentation. So we'll talk about that, and then. We're going to go to Tendai's、uh, backyard in Mo- in Mozambique,、uh, where again this is another kind of sad story. But the mass killing of of elephants,、uh, this of course continues another kind of meme in Sino-African discussions, which is the the kind of the industrialization of of poaching. And so we'll talk about that. So three topics. All of these topics, of course, we've had discussions on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject. We do hope that you'll have a chance to take a look at. That and also before we get started, just one very quick plug for our new Android and、uh, iPhone apps. We've had hundreds of downloads now in the first couple weeks. So if you want to listen to our podcast, follow our Facebook pages, our Twitter feeds, and、uh, of course Karina and Tendai's writing, it's all there on、uh, on our pad, on our phone、uh, mobile apps. Okay, let's get started first. Let's go to、uh, Deborah Browdigam's blog, and basically, what this was is a guest post by a gentleman by the name of KF, who I assume that they wanted to kind of keep、uh, the name anonymous, and really talks about some of the behind-the-scenes factors that go into、uh, the, the, the labor relations between Chinese-owned companies, particularly small to medium-sized enterprises, and、uh, African workers. Now, Kobus, this has been one of the the most sensitive issues, not only in Nigeria but really across the continent, and. And in this blog post, which is so interesting, and she has it at the、uh, ChinaAfricaRealStory.com,、uh, and you can read it. It's real, right there on the front page. She talks.、Uh, he talks about、uh, the, the the massive cultural misunderstandings and the learning curve that a lot of Chinese managers have when they first arrive, and how they bring their cultural kind of standards and practices, which may not be consistent with a lot of、uh, both international and particularly African customs. What was your reading of this、uh, uh, of this piece? But I mean, it's just fascinating, kind of behind-the-scenes info. You know, it's, it's obviously there's a lot of controversy in Africa about the idea that Chinese companies bring over Chinese workers, 
and um, you know, and, and obviously, as we've discussed in the past, that is actually a bit of a misconception. Many Chinese companies actually employ the majority of African workers. But what this story actually brings to the fore is the kind of difficult learning curve that it takes for those Chinese managers and African workers to work together. Um, and that is, you know, it's all kinds of like very interesting kind of management tools that they use, and uh, you know, kind of controversies and things that they didn't understand. One interesting example being that um, the Africans do not like working seven days a week, and Chinese people tend to want to, you know, kind of maximize productivity simply because they're trying to survive in a foreign market. Um, you know, and all of these things, like the the, the way that they need to um, invest in the local community and how they pay wages and so on. I mean, it's just fascinatingly interesting. You know, Tenda, I wanted to get your perspective on this in part because you're in China right now and at the same time you, you have a perspective from, from your home country as well in, in Zimbabwe. So you're, you kind of straddle both worlds here about this cultural misunderstanding and the misperceptions that lead to the to these tensions that, we're, that we've seen across the continent. So let's first start with what Kobus talked about, this idea of, you know, the, the work ethic, the Chinese work ethic, which as you know, is is you know is is hardcore i mean you know people start working early and they don't stop until the end of the day and seven days a week and you just go um and the idea of saturday and sunday and and you know those are very kind of industrialized country standards based on union practices you know having weekends off the 40 hour week minimum wages all these different things that doesn't exist in china so when you look at this type of first person narrative do you recognize both from the Chinese perspective where you are and the African perspective, a lot of the points that he touched on, or was he off base? I think most of what he said was um, on point. Sort of uh, what Koba said about trying to survive in the local market. Um, Chinese companies come in and there's already well-established sort of American companies and um, European companies in those markets and also the indigenous companies that are operating there. And um, sort of from the cultural uh, sort of misunderstanding perspectives, Chinese employers go to Africa with the experience and history of, of this country that has rejected socialism as, as a sort of viable form for economic development. So China has completely abandoned this iron rice ball sort of mentality and practice of providing social benefits to workers. While many African countries have still have a very strong sort of socialist um, sort of leanings uh, dating to the time when um, sort of African countries were fighting independence wars against uh, um, European colonizers, aided um, sort of paradoxically by a, a socialist um, China. So basically you have um, Chinese employers which who do not uh, place much importance on the rights of workers or sort of corporate social responsibility, or well, African workers, because of the trade union history and the history of socialism, demand sort of um, sort of basic human rights from basic sort of worker rights from their employers. Okay, so so that's very interesting that you're talking about kind of the different political philosophies that shape this. But you know, for me, I, I feel like there's a lot of pressure being put on Chinese, you know, both the, the, the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, as well as the SMEs, the small to medium enterprises. You know, for a lot of these companies, they've only been there for five or ten years. So that's a relatively short amount of time. And I feel like, you know, the, 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 the narrative uh, in, in both among academics and in the African press as well as in the Western press is kind of, you know, you should figure these things out now. 
Um, whereas, you know, colonial powers had, you know, decades, if not centuries, to, to figure some of these things out. So um, he ends the piece on a rather positive note, saying that Chinese are adapting and they are learning. Um, is that, is he, you know, giving a, 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 you know, what we'd like to think is a propaganda line? Or do you, re- do you actually see and hear uh, that there is a learning curve that, that's going on, Tendai? I think things are improving. Um, sort of um, in the response of the in the response that the Chinese company gave, they said that they would um, sort of um, place more importance on worker rights in the future, and they'll try to uh, increase wages for the workers. For the workers, I think the same thing is happening in China right now, where Chinese company Chinese companies are being pressured by. Uh, worker protests and sort of um, the international community to raise the working standards for workers. So things are improving in China and um, I think the same improvement is going to happen in in areas where Chinese companies operate overseas in, in Africa and in other places. You know, Karina, let me come to you. You know, there was one line that really struck me in this piece. He said, quote, to expect Chinese companies to provide the same working conditions, labor practices, business ethics as their Western counterparts is unrealistic and contrary to their own experiences. And somehow I think that when the United States uh, and and in Europe as well, when we look at the rest of the world and whether we're talking about labor practices in China, we've had months and months now of coverage of Apple iPhones and Foxconn. Uh, or Chinese practices in Africa, that there is this kind of, it goes through the filter of our own experiences, and we have a difficult time understanding it in a completely different context. Um, how, how do you think, am I, am I wrong here in kind of saying that the, that the West is misreading this situation and not necessarily giving the Chinese enough time to have a learning curve? Or uh, should we have the kinds of pressure that the, that, that, that the West is putting on Chinese companies, and, and even Africans as well, is putting on Chinese companies to, to take better care of their workers? Um, I think absolutely in terms of how Americans view China, they're really, um, for the most part, really forceful in terms of um, not allowing this kind of learning curve and just understanding these cultural differences in terms of management. Um, and I think it's definitely noteworthy um, the, how this article mentions that as the Chinese companies are, and what Tendai also mentioned, how the Chinese companies are learning with um, the protests that are going on in China among, you know, within the, their own country, um, that this is also going this is also a similar situation abroad. And I think it's, it's important for um, Americans to remember this um, going forward. Now, you know, Cobus, this is really a great example of, you know, the differences that you and I have talked about on many occasions between the SMEs and the SOEs, that is the small enterprises, the independent contractors, uh, and as well as the state-owned enterprises, who operate in two totally different realms. There's a whole body of academic research that's coming out talking about how the SOEs are implementing CSR strategies much more. Uh, Romain Digen in, uh, in Paris is talking, doing research on SOE, uh, China oil companies in China who are really doing some successful work in, in, in CSR. Uh, but what we're seeing now is that there's increasing pressure for the small enterprises to, to kind of implement some CSR. And that's, of course, what the author says as well as critical, is that you have to take care of the environment. You have to take care of your people if you want to get that return. And in part, he points out, and this is where I'd like to get your reaction, if you don't take care of your, your employees, they're going to go and work for, you know, he talked about the competition to find good labor uh, for other multinationals. So do you think that this is a, a pipe dream? And, you, you know, from your vantage point in South Africa, where we've seen a lot of labor strife, 
do you think that the the small to medium sized enterprises have the ability and the willpower or the will to to in, initiate a CSR strategy of their own? Well, you know, from from what I can read from this article, um, one of the one of the issues involved is that small and medium enterprises tend to have a much more intimate relationship with their workers. Um, so the kind of corporate social responsibility they practice must, def- by definition, be different from the kind done by massive state-owned enterprises. Um, and, it, and it involves having this much more personal relationship with individual workers, the kind that he's also describing. What is interesting for me in this is that it tends to then also produce a kind of a, what I think from a kind of a liberal Western perspective would look like a kind of a paternalism. You know, kind of because, for example, like he... He talks about how he, they, the, the Chinese um, owners of the companies are worried that if they pay a monthly wage, um, workers tend to then go on a, on a kind of spending spree and then they come back after the weekend really hungover and then they don't have any money left for the month. Um, you know, kind of when, and, and so they rather they switch to paying a weekly wage and in that way, you know, kind of the, these kind of smaller increments of money um, makes it easier, you know, the people don't, don't tend to blow all of that in one, in one kind of you know, fun weekend that into like the, you use it more wisely. Um, that's always very interesting for me. But on the other hand, it does smack of very old style European paternalism. You know, and kind of like just assuming that that these African workers can't necessarily run their own affairs, which seen from his you know his perspective, maybe the particular people that they're working with might not be able to. You know, yes. kind of so that that what, what that kind of relationship means is very different, I think, in the two contexts. Yeah, but let me challenge you a little bit there in terms of this idea of being paternalistic. You know, he talked a little bit about you know the the language barrier, and you know I'm working in a country where I don't speak the same language as my employees. Uh, and it is extraordinarily difficult when both parties are using kind of English. Now, English is my mother tongue, but in this case in Africa, you're seeing English as a second language from the Chinese management and English oftentimes as a second language uh, from, the, uh, from the employees if they're in a French-speaking country or somewhere else. That's point number one, which is language. So that's very, very difficult to cross that Rubicon. Second... Um, I think the complexities, and this is something that, you know, what Karina talked about, how the U.S. and the West, we put a lot of pressure on people. Um, When I was in the Congo, one of the points that that was made very clear to me was that the timetable for the construction projects was not set by the Chinese contractors. It was set by Joseph Kabila and his political calendar. So in order to meet those timetables of political considerations, they, the Chinese contractors, had to bring in a lot of their own labor just because it was more efficient and more simple. Tendai, let me come to you for the last word on this. Um, This is, again, we talked about one of the most sensitive issues in all of Sino-African relations, which is the question of labor and how Chinese companies are treating their employees. Um, when you you know when you see this type of discussion, I feel it highlights the failures of academia for their research, who are not putting the level of nuance into the studying of this of this issue. Because this guy, in his simple post on a blog, uh, seemed to be able to kind of convey the complexity far more than than academic research that we've seen on this very subject, which you know gets lost in numbers and gets lost in in in, in fifty five pages of sourcing. Uh, am I am I off base on that? Well, I think some academics have um, been bringing forward sort of nuanced research on on Chinese sort of labor practices in Africa. I think Professor uh, Bradigam has done some wonderful research on this, 
and other scholars of world have been doing research that's nuanced and sort of um, explores um, how different sort of um, cultural understandings and different sort of like uh, views towards uh, what workers should, um, what, what, what rights workers should have bring to um, the sort of um, interactions between Chinese companies and African workers in China. So I think there is some nuanced research it's just not um, sort of reported widely mm-hmm. uh, enough in the in the media. I think. Okay. Okay. Uh, Karina, any final thoughts on this subject from your point of view? Um, I mean, on that last point about how I think that this this is a good point of when um, a good example of how um, journalism journalists and academics should discuss these these um, topics because you can see more of these nuances and I think it's a really um, important discussion to have and um, I like these kind of forums in which um, these nuances can come forth especially in such a complex issue such as you know China Africa relations so yeah and that's my I guess to echo your point there my point on this one as well is that it is far more complicated than it looks on the outside you know labor whether it's in the US or in China China or in Africa is an extraordinarily complex issue, and uh, and it's always much more complicated than it seems on the outside. So let's move on now to our second topic, uh, equally as sensitive, and this is something that really dates back to the to the early days of Sino-African scholarship, which is really the industrialization of China's clear cutting of forests, and uh, we're seeing this not only in Mozambique but all th- really throughout the sub the, the sub sub-Saharan and the subcontinent uh, the sub-Saharan continent, uh, and uh, there's report that came out from the Environmental Investigation Agency, and that may actually sound familiar to you, Cobus, because we talked about a report that they uh, they came out with last year uh, called Appetite for Destruction, China's Trade in Illegal Timber, and you can find that at eia-international.org. Um, you know, just a little bit of a disclosure here. I'm not entirely, you know, knowledgeable about this organization, so I don't know what their background is, where their funding comes from. Uh, Kobus, are you familiar with EIA by any chance? I'm not really, They, but they, they have done quite a lot of work for a long time okay. on issues like forest management. But, you know, more than that, I'm not, I'm not well, so sure. The reason I say this is because oftentimes with NGOs is there's there's an alarmist type of tone that's taken with their reporting in order to generate attention and, and even funding. So when, you know, but, so that disclosure here, but let's just talk about the issue at hand, which is uh, their their allegation of Mozambique losing a fortune to illegal timber exports. Um, they're saying that, you know, about half of the timber now is, is, is illegally logged. Um, we've seen re- this type of behavior in the Republic of Congo, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, in, in a number of different countries, uh, where... Chinese contractors work with corrupt local government officials and uh, to basically, you know, clear cut. And again, what's so interesting about this, it's not like during the colonial period when foreigners came in to, to harvest resources because the Chinese are bringing in a level of mechanization that has never been seen before. So the pace and the scale of the cutting is so, uh, is so, is so devastating. So, Kobus, uh, for you when, you, when you see these types of reports, um, is your first reaction kind of like, oh, God, again? Or is your reaction of what what can possibly be done to stop this? Because there's so much money, there's so much demand, and there's so little governance. Where is going to be the check on this? Well, I, I think, you know, kind of this, this report is a pretty interesting place to start because it does interesting work in the sense that, it, it for example, it, it um, compares the amount of, of logs 
you know, kind of recorded as exported from Mozambique versus those imported from Mozambique in China. So it, they, they, they do research on the Chinese side and the Mozambican side, and there are these crazy, you know, discrepancies in numbers. Um, and then also they name names. So they name the names of, of actual individual, you know, kind of ministers and, and government officials on the Mozambican side who are in the pockets of certain specific Chinese companies. And the specific, they have interviews even with the CEOs of these companies saying things like, oh, if we have a, if we have a problem, we just need to pay this and this person, you know, kind of um, in the Mozambican government and it disappears. So, you know, it's, it's a, I think this report is a quite a big step forward in actually identifying exactly how this whole process works. Okay, so uh, Tendai, one of the uh, they have three points of action that the EIA calls on uh, calls for. Okay, so and, and I want to get your reaction to this. Number one, uh, prohibit the import of illegal timber into China. Uh, number two, liaise with Mozambique on its timber export laws and coordinate with them on imports into China. Uh, and three is ensure state-owned companies are not exporting illegal timber from Mozambique nor importing it into China. Okay. Those are their, their three kind of recommendations that they make in their point. And to me, as somebody who's lived in China for a long time, somebody – you live there now – um, that's kind of weak, you know, in my opinion, in part because, you know, the Chinese obviously, you know, they can barely control, you know, contaminated milk. They can't control intellectual property violations in their own country. They can't control a number of their own corrupt officials allowing for smuggling to come in. I mean, their borders, you know, are, are kind of weak and their enforcement is, is, is weak and, and corruption is a huge issue in there. So if you're calling on China to do the enforcement, uh, that – that really seems to me like, you know, that's a dead end, don't you think? Yeah, I agree that uh, singling out China for uh, sort of solve this illegal logging problem is not really helpful. Um, the report by, by the EIA mentions that China re-exports a large amount of the wooded imports uh, as finished products to the EU, the US and other countries. So I think um, sort of cooperation of among all these countries is needed to to solve the illegal logging problem. Um, also, I think that both the Chinese government and the Mozambican government already have sort of uh, laws against illegal logging. So um, China has this forest certification standard and this chain of custody process. That, that means that um, all imported sort of um, wood and all imported wood products in China um, have to be sort of um, traceable. So there's um, sort of due diligence requirements for 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 importers of of, of, of wood of wood and wood products. And um, the Chinese government has um, so the Chinese government has clearly banned sort of um, illegal logging. But the enforcement of that is is, is really difficult. And Mozambique as well um, has the same problem because it already has laws that prohibit the export of of um, sort of um, logs of endangered uh, tree species and the licenses that are required for um, logging and the export of timber. So okay. they already have those laws in place, but a major problem is that they don't have the resources to enforce To enforce laws. it. So, uh, so Karina, I'm going to come to you with the same question, so, so take note. Tendai, uh, let's go to the, 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 the certification and the licenses that you talked about. One of the things that the EIA mentioned in their original report, uh, Appetite for Destruction, uh, was the fact that uh, corrupt government officials were giving Chinese contractors uh, certificates. 
And so the Chinese were saying, hey, listen, we got a certificate from the Ministry of Forestry or the Interior Ministry or whatnot. So where does the moral responsibility lie for this, this clear-cutting and this illegal logging? Is it with the Chinese who are saying, we're playing by the rules, they're giving us a certificate? Or is it with the, the African states and the corrupt African ministers who are giving away these certificates when they shouldn't be? Tendai, first to you on this. Well, I think both sides have to play a more active role in seeing whether the certificates that are issued are indeed sort of legal on both sides. So um, in terms of China, the, 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 the Chinese sort of customs administration should make sure that the certificates for the importation of, of sort of logs that um, these Chinese companies have are actually legal. Yeah, but, and, but let me stop uh, you there. I'm sorry, but, you know, they, they are getting a legitimate certificate from the Ministry of Forestry, either in Zimbabwe, in Congo, or wherever. And so in you, know, you can imagine at some port in Shenzhen, when they see the documentation and they see a stamp and they see a legitimate, you know, documentation that says this is a, 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 a real certificate, what, what's, that, what's that customs officer supposed to do? I mean, I'm trying to get down to the nitty-gritty of enforcement here and how this actually happens. Well, I think that's that's a sort of difficult question to answer, but I, I I think that, well, if they can't do it on the Chinese side, then at least on the Mozambican side, the Chinese government should work with uh, Mozambican officials to sort of try and curb corruption uh, in the sort of uh, issue of these certificates because it's, it's also not... not good for China if, if people are being issued sort of um, illegal certificates that in the end make China sort of look bad. I think China has this, um, uh, does not want to look bad in in, 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 uh, in front of like um, other countries in the world, I think. So I think that they should work actively with the Mozambican officials to try and curb corruption. Okay, so Karina, now on this morality question, first let's talk about where where you think responsibility lies. Is it on the African side where they are issuing these certificates and these licenses, or is it on the illegal logging side from the Chinese who who are taking sometimes a legitimate certificate, sometimes not, and uh, and and then you know illegally bringing those the, the, the those timber back to China? Where do you think responsibility lies? I think responsibility um, lies on both sides, both China and Mozambique, but um, there's more potential harm to Mozambique. So I think, um, especially in terms of, you know, they're losing tax revenue, um, which would help improve their governance, um, and also in terms of climate change. And so there's more potential harm that can be done in this situation to Mozambique. So even though I think responsibility lies on both sides it's so mozambique does have um i guess greater uh, a greater need for concern over this issue um and and i'm also wondering about maybe like international policy regarding this because there's like environmental policy if there's some kind of international law that would um you know govern logging and all of this that they could um, you know, bring this to a more international forum. Yeah, but wh- who, how do you enforce that? I mean, that's kind of like, you know, bringing international law to, to drug trafficking or ivory smuggling or, you know, that's the key question is you've got weak enforcement on the Mozambican side. And as Tendai kind of talked about, you've got weak enforcement on the Chinese side as well. So where does the enforcement of any international law uh, occur? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
to break in, but for me, it seems like the real responsibility for Mozambique, Mozambican resources has to lie with Mozambique. You know, I mean, they have, you know, that 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 has to be their, their number one concern is they have to protect their own resources. Yeah, but fair, you can say that, you know, but at the end of the day, this is the fourth poorest country and they can barely have running water, much less enforce this type of thing where you have very powerful people who are profiting um, you know, it, you know, it, it huge amounts of money uh, on these types of deals, and they're not going to succumb to any local laws because they set the laws themselves. I mean, this is like, you know, you're asking Joseph Kabila in the Congo to kind of, you know, to 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 clean up his act when he's making four, five hundred million dollars a year from corruption. He has no incentive to clean up. I hate to be the the the, the voice of cynicism here. Yeah, no, you're completely right. But you know, kind of at the same time, like once once you you have that kind of system, then I, I also think that it, it becomes very difficult to, to apply international law or or, so, or you know, kind of international systems on that situation to begin with, because the the foundation on which you would build that is rotten. You know, kind of so if if the state is so corrupt, then that obviously it undermines any kind of external way try you know attempts to try and impose something else as well. Yeah, and I think this is the concern of environmentalists is that. Because they're, you know, the problems that we've talked about, which is the weak enforcement, uh, and the fact is that you know there really is not a lot of of, of, of hope here that we can fix this, um, that that the destruction will be will be will be permanent long term. But Karina, let me come back to you because this is the, the the dirty underbelly of all of this. You you live in Norman, Oklahoma, and I assume in Norman, Oklahoma, there's a Target and there's a Walmart and there's probably a Sam's Club and things like that. Um, a lot of that. Mozambican wood is probably sitting, you know, a couple kilometers away from you right now uh, in, in products made in China and re-exported out. Um, and the dirty secret in all of this is that it's American and Western consumers who demand those low prices, who force those low prices on Chinese contractors and subcontractors to produce, you know, that sofa for $99 and to produce all of that crap that we buy at Walmart. Um, so where are we complicit in this? And that's where I get a little bit indignant, indignant when I see Westerners and Americans who profit from the the low prices that come out of China that use these – uh, these these natural resources coming from Africa kind of say, well, uh, the Chinese should do something about this. Is, is that overreaching? Um, I think, hmm, I mean, it's a difficult, difficult um, question. I mean, if, if you haven't traveled to a third world country and, or developing country for that matter, I mean, you, you aren't aware of these issues and most Americans aren't. And they, I mean, they just simply don't care. So, I mean... It's hard to say where the blame lies um, because in a, you know, for an average American every day, um, you know, they would just want the lowest price. They wouldn't really care about where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it's the nature of, you know, the 21st century and this whole, I don't know, classic realism versus liberalism argument and all of that. Um, but it's just the nature of how things are right in, you know. Now. Okay, so it's okay. fair enough. Fair enough that the average American may not know, and that's a burden that we may not that may not be reasonable to put on the average American. But policymakers, you know, we, you know, uh, uh, our our leaders, you know, have all sorts of import requirements. We cannot have, for example, uh, a, you know, 
certain types of whale meat cannot be sold in the United States. Uh, you know, there's lots of different regulations in imported products. So if you cannot verify where uh, this wood comes from, it shouldn't be sold at Ikea, Walmart, or Target. Uh, we haven't taken those initiatives yet mm-hmm. because, in part, American consumers don't want to pay the higher prices. So, again, I come back to you on the moral question here. Uh, the United States is a country that has 4% of the world's population yet produces 25% of the world's pollution and is also the largest consumer of these low-cost products. Do do we as a society have a moral responsibility to be able to uh, – in this whole debate of the mosaic and wood? Um, yeah, I, th- I think we do. Um, we we should be aware of these, these issues. We should be more attentive to, you know, where our our products are coming from. Um, I mean, just the other day, I was like buying salmon, and it said it was, you know, made in China and or farmed in China, and I didn't want to buy it. Um, but in terms of policymakers, um, yeah, they definitely should be concerned about this and should take more responsibility. I mean, responsibility. I think you could equally put it on every single party involved. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's, again, if, and if responsibility is spread so thin, no one's really accountable. Tenda, I hear you wanting to get in. Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, China is sort of um, looking at uh, those moral issues, and that's why it has sort of inf- enacted this foreign, this forest um, certification standard and this chain of um, custody process. So, I mean, 50% of the sort of wood that's being imported from Mozambique and other countries is imported by Chinese state-owned companies. So China, I think, really has um, the ability to sort of see whether the the, the 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 wood that they are importing from these countries is illegally or legally procured or not. And so I think China can sort of um, do its part to sort of make sure that the wood that they are procuring are is illegal. Yeah. Is legal. And one final point on this, this is, an, this is an issue that's not just affecting Africa, but also in South Asia as well. Uh, Cambodia and Myanmar and in, uh, in certain parts of Thailand as well, in, we're in the South Asian, Southeast Asian rainforests, uh, there's big concern about Chinese illegal logging. So this is, this is truly a global issue. Uh, we would love to hear your point of view on this. Uh, this is one of the, the themes of our discussion that we've had on Facebook, uh, the question of where does responsibility lie, moral and otherwise? How can we fix it? Um, and what can be done, if anything? There may not actually be a solution to this problem. And that's really uh, a very sad outcome of this. However, there may be one. And we'd like to hear what you think of this. You know, one of the, the lines that Cobus and I take uh, that we've had on this dis- on the show for many, many months now is, you know, what is the African responsibility and the African response, not Africans as victims here, but active, a- Africans as active participants in this. This is not being done to Africa. As, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Cobus here, but uh, Africans now and African governments should stand up and have a say. They are not being controlled by foreign powers and colonialists the same way they were 200 years ago. Am I, am I quoting you correctly? Correctly on this? Yeah, absolutely. I think to take a bit of a hard line on this, like Africa really needs to make their decisions and stand by their decisions and, and, and be counted on those decisions. And also hold their own people, their own leaders accountable for the corruption. I mean, you know, Karina pointed out that Mozambique is the biggest loser here, and so much of that is due to corruption. So uh, the Chinese certainly are to blame, and Chinese contractors are to blame, and if state-owned enterprises uh, are involved in this, they should be censured. But at 
at the same time, corrupt uh, Zimbabwean officials also should be uh, should be held accountable for that in Mozambique. So uh, we're going to kind of continue this, this depressing line of, uh, of conversation. This has really not been our most uplifting show today. Uh, we're going to head over <laughs> to Zimbabwe. Uh, where at the uh, where we're talking about you know the the poaching of elephants for ivory and this has been one of our ongoing discussions on our Facebook page uh, at facebook.com/slash/china-africa-project. In particular, uh, Susan Barrett is one of our contributors. Uh, we post quite a bit on this issue, uh, and, and she's very very passionate about the issue. And so I recommend that you go into the comments page of our Facebook. Uh, and, and you can see all of Susan's input. And there's also Mark Houston from Hong Kong who's been writing a lot about this on, on our Facebook page. Uh, and it's all very in- incredibly depressing uh, that the, the consumption and the demand of ivory in China, and not only China but also in Vietnam and in Japan, Hong Kong and other parts of Asia, is so large. And to the, the points that we've made on the issue of – uh, of forestry and logging, the enforcement is so weak. So, Cobus, uh, let me come back to you. Uh, you know, Zimbabwe is no different than what we've seen in Botswana, what we've seen in Uganda and some other places in Kenya, uh, where there just isn't enough money to protect these animals and the populations are plummeting. The New York Times has done a number of different stories on this, suggesting that uh, military uh, operations are basically being used. You know, they're corrupt. They're using helicopters and high-powered weapons to kill these animals uh, because in one one animal can bring $10,000, which is you know, years of salary for people. And with that kind of demand, what hope is there for the elephant? Yeah, it's such a, it's such a complicated situation, particularly when you're in Southern Africa. Because on the one hand, while populations are plummeting in certain countries, they're booming in other countries. So, for example, South Africa's elephant population, com- compared to the rhino, rhino population, the rhino population is plummeting. But the elephant population is booming. And elephants are very heavy on the environment. Um, you know, they tend to, they, they, they roam incredibly widely. And they tend to take, you know, to take down trees wherever they are, which means they, the, the land can only support so many elephants before it starts the land itself the environment itself starts getting degraded um, so uh, you know and, and, and these kind of uh, wild wilderness areas are incredibly expensive to maintain um, so it becomes this kind of really difficult situation where in certain African countries they are being hunted for ivory and really disappearing in other countries they are pretty much wiping out every, everything around them um, and you know kind of the, the government needs to work out culling plans and so on to, to, to try and maintain their populations um, um, and you've thrown into the mix uh, an incredibly prosperous Asia with, with a long, you know, centuries history of, of ivory carving, and, and that it, it just becomes this impossible situation. Yeah. So, uh, Tendai, you're, you're, you're originally from Zimbabwe. Uh, so when you look, when you, when you kind of see the political structure back home, and do you see any hope for enforcement to contain this, this, this illegal killing? Or, you know, is, is the government too distracted with, with so many other problems that uh, elephant protection and environmental protection figures very, very low on their, on their list of priorities? Yeah, I mean, there's a, <coughs> there's a lot of rhetoric um, from the government saying we will crack down on poaching, but they simply don't have the resources or actually the political will to do so. As you mentioned, there are many other problems that um, sort of Zimbabwe is facing right now. So I don't really see any um, sort of um, positive um, sort of conclusion to this. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, um, go ahead, Cobus. Tenda, can I jump in here? Um, like when we we were discussing this topic earlier this week, we were also looking at the the whole issue of the exportation of live baby elephants from Zimbabwe to China. And you mentioned to me, um, you know, kind of that that some of the coverage of this was was very um, driven by the opposite by opposition politics in Zimbabwe, and that some of the the um, newspaper newspaper articles written about them take a very anti-government stance. Um, I was wondering if you could t- tell us a little bit about that, about the whole controversy of the export of actual live elephants and like how that plays politically within Zimbabwe. Yeah, I think um, some of the reports that we were seeing um, are kind of part of this sort of wave of yellow journalism that has um, sort of followed China's um, increasingly close ties with African countries. One of the reports talks about sort of little lone elephant babies being kidnapped from Zimbabwe and being placed in in Chinese dungeons, which I think is a bit um, ridiculous and is clearly sort of um, sensationalizing. So I think that's one aspect of it. The second aspect is also tied to um, uh, opposition politics in Zimbabwe. Many of these um, sort of um, online news portals that report on um, sort of elephant um, elephant babies being uh, kidnapped from Zimbabwe to China are sort of um, run by um, Zimbabwean people in the diaspora who support the opposition MDC party. So sort of attacking China is attacking um, Mugabe. And um, so one of the sites that published the story about Zimbabwean elephants also wrote about um, Zanupi of sort of slaughtering elephants and eating them at a meeting and also wrote about sort of... um, Mugabe's wife being connected to some Chinese mafia gang. So there's clearly sort of um, opposition politics involved in this. Um, they are sort of, the Zimbabwean government has gifted elephants and other animals to China, but as far as I know, um, none, of, none of these animals are sort of kidnapped or sort of placed in, in, in prisons or sort of Chinese dungeons or anything of that sort. You know, Karina, this uh, this issue strikes me. It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, when I was living in the states. That um, you know, you see a homeless person on the street, and the homeless person will have a cute dog, and people passing by go, "Oh, the poor dog." Um, and in some ways, in for um, the American kind of view and the Western view of Africa is wildlife and safaris and <coughs> elephants. And so this issue has the potential to really grab people's attention. That you know, the killing of uh, of Dumbo and killing of these these precious animals is far more important and will get a lot more attention uh, in the eyes of public opinion in the U.S. than than some of the human disasters that we've seen over the years there. So this has a, a lot of potential to really, you know, have a very negative impact on the perception of the Chinese uh, in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there is it's really going to like tug at the heartstrings of you know the american conscious to hear these kind of stories um but i think it's also important to remember about how there's such a huge demand for this not for ivory um not only in china but throughout south asia and you know it has like religious connotation or you know undertones to it and um this demand for ivory i think is an important um part of the equation that um you know should be discussed and for policymakers. Yeah, and and Cobus, let's let's talk about that because one of the issues you brought up in our last discussion about ivory was that the vast majority, and according to polls of Chinese consumers, had no idea 
that the ivory was coming from, you know, this the source, this this kind of illegal source. That people won't go to the store, they buy ivory the same way that, you know, the American consumers Karina talked about, you know, goes to Target and buys, you know, a sofa made with wood from illegal Mozambican logging. Um, so they don't know where it comes from because it's not written on it that this was, you know, illegally poached. Um, so if we are, you know, you know, Yao Ming, the famous basketball star, is engaged in this huge publicity campaign in China. Um, so do you think that will be the thing that turns the tide? Or is the fact that, you know, in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in China, in, in Cambodia and elsewhere where incomes are rising, you know what? Screw it. I, I want my ivory. I don't care where it comes from or how I got it. Yeah, I mean, you know, apparently another misconception is that a lot of Chinese people apparently don't really re- realize that you need to kill an elephant to get the tusk off, off it, you know, kind of, that you, it's not a situation where you take the elephant to the elephant dentist and have it extracted, you know, kind of under anesthesia, you know, kind of it's, um, and that apparently that making that point that every single you know, ivory product in the shop represents a dead elephant is a kind of a mental leap that would probably, well, apparently, according to, to certain kind of researchers, would make, uh, you know, go, 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 go quite a way to kind of convince, you know, people that this is probably not a good idea. Um, maybe that the parallel would be, you know, as China became richer, um, there was obviously this, this development of a banquet culture in, you know, kind of um, in, in China and, you know, expensive and rare food became this incredible status symbol state-sponsored banquets. And then recently the, the, the Chinese state actually announced that they're cracking down on these very lavish banquets and that from now on state-owned companies and, and you know, kind of an, and state, um, state officials are not supposed to be indulging in these kind of rare delicacies. Um, you know, maybe ivory, there's a parallel there. You know, kind of maybe, you know, kind of once, once the, there's a kind of a critical mass of negative perception that will actually swing the Chinese government around and, you know, kind of make it a, a, a problematic, you know. Yeah, and what you're referencing, of course, is uh, shark fin soup. And so the experience about shark, uh, so just to clarify your point, which was uh, the Chinese government banned the consumption of shark fin soup at any official banquets. And they also did, and this is to to Tendai's point about uh, at the customs enforcement, uh, they really did start to crack down on on shark fin. uh, and, And that really did help the shark population. So the only hope that we have and this goes back to our logging conversation with, with Tendai, is that Chinese customs and Chinese publicity with, through the likes of Yao Ming uh, are able to turn public opinion away from consumption of ivory. It is a tough, tough sell. I think it's going to take a lot more than Yao Ming. Uh, and again, we, we have to put moral responsibility both on the Chinese as well as on the African states uh, where corruption is, is also at play in this. And so, uh, again, it's a, it's a very complicated issue. We've had three... Very sensitive, very complicated topics uh, today on the show, Uh, starting off, of course, with labor, then going to logging, and now ending with ivory. Uh, We would love to hear what you think about this. Again, I'm bringing up our Facebook page because there's just some amazing discussions that are going on uh, on all of these different topics. And what's fantastic about uh, our page is 60 to 70 percent of the 36,000 people that are on that page are are 18 to 24-year-olds from Africa. So this is a great opportunity to have a discussion with people in the region, from the region. 
Unfortunately, we don't have as many uh, in China, given that Facebook uh, remains blocked there. But uh, nonetheless, people like Tendai, you tell me that there's enough people who are behind the great firewall who can access our page as well. So if you're listening to us in China, uh, use get a good VPN and, and log on to our page as well. So, uh, so that'll do it for this edition of the show. Uh, what we do before we end every week is we also just go around and kind of tap in everybody's social network. So, Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and what you're doing, uh, where can they find you? I um, post regularly to our Facebook page, and I have discussions with people there. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And how about you, uh, Tendai, uh, from Shanghai? Where are you? Uh, where are you on the web? Well, you can follow me on my fa- on our Facebook page as well, at uh, the China Africa Projects、uh, Facebook page, and you can follow me on Twitter at、uh, T-E-M-U-S-A-K-W-A. And Tendai has done some just incredible translations of Chinese social media that he's been publishing on the China Africa Project website.、Uh, so he'll continue to do that. Just a heads up that we are going to be、uh, relaunching the web. Uh, the, the site in a, in a few weeks with、uh, a whole bunch of new content, new layout, and a lot more space for the likes of Karina and for Tendai to contribute. So,、uh, so that's、uh, so. Just keep an eye out for that. And finally, Karina, where can people follow you on、uh, on Twitter? On Twitter, my、um, username is Vancura, so it's V A N C S U R A. There we go. So we are, are all on Twitter, and if you want to follow me, I'm at E O Lander. That's E O L A N D E R. Uh, I'm tweeting almost every day. It's been a little bit light in the China African news these days, so if I'm not tweeting, it's because I, I simply don't have enough material to work with. But、uh, when there is material,、uh, I go ahead and post it up. And of course, you can follow us at thechinaafricaproject.com. Karina is going to be contributing there. Tendai is writing there.、Uh, Kobus and I have our podcast up there,、uh, so you can find us there. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes.、Uh, that helps us a lot. If you do actually subscribe and leave us a comment, because it does help us. Raise the visibility of the podcast in the iTunes ecosystem.、Uh, you can follow us on T- Stitcher and SoundCloud as well. So we'll be back again next Sunday with another edition of the China and Africa podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening. 